Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Welcome back to AccidentalMuslims.com. We are joined uh, by Tim Humble. Shukran so much for accepting our invitation and being here with us. So, so tell us, who are you? Who is, who is Tim Humble? Okay, so uh, I'm from a city called Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is in the north-east of England. Right now I live in Dubai, so I've kind of moved out of the UK. But uh, I became Muslim when I was 14 years old. And since then I've been on a journey to learn as much as I can about Islam and Alhamdulillah to share it with people. So I travel around the world giving lectures, classes, seminars, talks and you know that's kind of how I spend my time. So let's go back to when you were 14. What made 14 year old Tim become Muslim? What made 14 year old Tim become Muslim? That's a how I was whenever I, I sometimes when people ask me that question I start asking myself the same thing. And subhanAllah, it's a story that I've told so many times. It, it's, so, it's different how you remember different aspects of it at different times. But the, the, the summary of it was that I went through a time when I was really questioning myself. I really wanted to know, uh, you know, sort of why are things happening to me? Why am I here? What is this all about? And at that time, we started going through religious education classes in school, part of the British national curriculum. We had to do it. And uh, alhamdulillah, we, one of the topics came up was Islam. And when Islam came up, it just struck, it just really, you know, touched my heart that this suddenly here's a, here's a religion that makes sense. And uh, it made a big difference to me. So I eventually, over the weeks, I, I decided to become Muslim. What was it about Islam that made sense to you? I think uh, probably the simplicity of it, to a certain extent. The fact that Islam is very, very very simple, very easy to understand. And yet, it's, it has, you know, it has, what's the word? We call it divine simplicity. You know, it's not simple, simple in the sense of lacking depth or lacking, uh, you know, spirituality or something like that. It's simple in the sense that it's easy for, uh, for everyone to approach it. But in terms of the, you know, subhanAllah, the complete code of conduct for living your life, can't find that in any other any other way of life in any other religion do you feel that the way that the islamic message is being portrayed today by muslims is maybe not in the correct manner as as you describe this divine simplicity because i want to touch on a point that is, is quite a concern to myself and many others and dr yasir qadi when he came down we also had him in accidental muslims he, this, this point also brought him is young muslims growing up as minorities in South Africa, in the UK, in America, that are actually leaving Islam. So you at an age at sort of 14, you'd embraced Islam and you'd taken on this the simplicity and this, I like the way you put it, divine simplicity. Whereas the realities we've got in our community, 14-year-olds who are born Muslim and are saying, we don't want this, we want something else. Yeah, no doubt. I think that there are a number of reasons for that. I think, first of all, as Muslims, we don't always do the best job of explaining Islam to people, and sometimes not even to our, you know, if you're talking about younger people, to even our younger siblings or our, our children even. Uh, 
sometimes we don't do the best job of explaining Islam to them. And we sometimes make things difficult for ourselves. I just think it's a profound you know, element to the story of Musa, the fact that how Bani Israel made things so difficult for themselves. Allah wants your religion to be easy. Allah wants things to be easy for you. Allah wants things to be simple for you. Allah wants to make things so easy that you, you just you love to practice your religion. But sometimes we make things difficult for ourselves. So it's important we don't do that. And I think also the pressure on young people today, exposure to different ideologies and beliefs, it's, it's hard sometimes to get good answers to questions. And I think when I look at that from the perspective of someone who became Muslim, I went through a phase where I had questions and I got good answers to those questions from Islam. There's a lot of young Muslims today who have questions that they really, really matter, really important questions, but they don't find the right answers to them. And then that lets misconceptions settle in the heart and then they grow into, you know, sadly, people you know, who are not happy with Islam. And that's it's such a shame because if they knew Islam as Islam really is, they, they would have to be happy with it. How do you think we could go about addressing some of these issues that you've mentioned? I know I've come across Yaqeen Institute, which is a US-based think tank, and they've come up with some amazing papers, some of which address these issues, and they've been quite an ama- they've done quite amazing work that, you know, even within academics, because we have non-Muslim academia who's relying on their literature, and in a sense they, they are trying to reclaim a narrative. So what is your take on that, of, of how we can maybe reclaim a narrative? I think uh, there are two really, really important things. I mean, the first thing is that the very fa- the foundation of, of getting rid of misconceptions and confusion among people of all ages is, is knowledge. But I think the second part to that is making that knowledge easy to understand and making it, m- letting people take it in a, in a structured and, a, and, a, and an organized way. Because what happens to a lot of people is our education as it relates to Islam is a little bit of copying our parents, a little bit of what we see some other people do, a little bit of studying something of YouTube video here. And it's all very sort of haphazard and, and very sort of unstructured. So just making it easy for people to, to be able to learn Islam in a, in a structured way. In a, in a way that is they can understand, in a language they can understand, in a manner that they're comfortable with, I think that will go a long, long way to, to getting rid of some of these things. I think academic side is interesting from an academic perspective, but sometimes the academic perspective doesn't always translate into real results in the, in the real world because you're looking at some young people who maybe it's about taking that, that work that is done in academia and bringing it to those young people in a way that they can consume it and understand it in a way they can you know, they can internalize it. So you seem very passionate about what you do. When I asked you the question, your face sort of lit up and you passionately described all of these, these events that you will be doing. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Uh, I don't know. I, I all, I've never found, or perhaps the way to, to say it is that I've always found teaching and lecturing very enjoyable. I've, and... I don't think that when I started learning Islam, I started learning Islam with the idea that I was going to teach people. I think at that point, I was more concerned about my own flaws and faults and ignorance and issues and, you know, growing up and trying to figure out what Islam was. And 
I think I think that was my in in the first few years that was that was the only thing on my mind. But definitely, you go through a phase as a Muslim where you want to share the good that you have with other people, and I've never found that difficult. I don't find like for example public speaking particularly daunting or anything. So I've always thought that it would be something that I would reach a point where I would love to do. And I do enjoy it. Well, it's beautiful to meet different people, to travel, to see, to gain different experiences, to learn from them, and to share some of the things that I've learned and to try and put it across in a way that I hope people can understand and appreciate. So I want to ask you, you've mentioned obviously that you've traveled a lot and you've studied in various places. What is your take on the idea of mentorship and, and do you have any mentors? I think you have, you have to have. You have to have people who... The whole of Islamic scholarship and Islamic study is all based upon having a sheikh or having a teacher, having, and not just, you know, it's, it's interesting because sometimes when we say the word sheikh, we might think of somebody really, you know, really, really knowledgeable and, and you know, sort of really at the, the top of the tree, so to speak. But, you know, even just having a mentor, having somebody who's a few years older than you, who's just been through that study, who's passed, who's graduated, who's doing good things. There are so many people when I look through my life that have inspired me in terms of, and I was talking about my first Quran teacher, you know, things like that. And, and then you look at sort of how I've met students who've done particularly amazing things and have gone on to really you know, change their, their society and their locality. And, and you know, definitely, I think, mentors across the, across the board in terms of people who were students and people who were also my teachers and mashaya. Would you maybe want to mention, you mentioned your Qur'an teacher, would you want to mention maybe perhaps one or two mentors or even teachers that have really impacted your life? Well, I think, uh, I talk first of all, that there was a particular, the reason I mentioned the Qur'an teacher is that my, my Qur'an teacher when I was, uh, I was in Medina, in the Masjid al-Nabawi, and, and I remember that the, the halakat in the Masjid, the, the, the sittings for memorizing the Qur'an, very hard to get into. It's a long waiting list and it's very competitive. And if you didn't come, you know, missed a few days, you wouldn't have a place after that. So it was very, it was very daunting task as someone who's come to a place, didn't speak the language, um, was just struggling to sort of get used to the the city and and the masjid. And to and then I found this, I found this Quran teacher, an Egyptian brother, and he was the first thing that really struck me about him. Is he was so open. He never ever refused a student. I never ever saw him have a student come to him and say, I'm too busy, I've got too many students, I can't take you. He was very, very welcoming, very patient with me. Uh, one of my first, so it was one of the first people who uh, I got to actually you know, read a significant amount of the Quran to. And I think that was a really beautiful, just you know, being able to do that in one of the most, definitely the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, it's, it's a real, that was a real inspiration for me. Uh, there are some teachers, I think, Different teachers inspire you for different reasons. You know, some teachers inspired me because they had amazing memorization and amazing knowledge and just the depth of knowledge that they had. It was just, you know, it's like sitting with a, a walking encyclopedia. And sometimes teachers inspire you because of the way that they manners. You know, subhanAllah, I remember it said about Imam Ahmed that people, more people used to come and sit with him to learn manners, rahimahullah, than people who were learning actual hadith or, or fiqh or something like that. And subhanAllah, I think uh, I had some teachers who 
when I think about them, the thing that strikes me is how easy and approachable they were, how gentle they were, soft and, and easy to, to sort of, uh, you know, to, to learn from. And they made you really love knowledge because I think if you want to learn, if you want to dedicate yourself to learning Islam, you have to really love it. You have to really love it and you have to really have a passion for it. So sometimes there are one or two teachers who, when I think about them, they, you know, what sticks in my mind is, is how inspiration, how they inspired me to want to learn more. Yeah, so, so, so many people, I'd say it's a big question. SubhanAllah. In terms of the Quran, you mentioned now your Quran teacher and how he inspired you. What is your favorite ayah of the Quran or, or, or story, favorite story from the Quran and, and perhaps even from a, a hadith as well? Wow, that is a, that's a, that's a big question. Um, there are there are so many I think there are so many different the Quran is so is so profound and so deep that there are so many different parts I mean I can almost my mind could go over you know hundreds and hundreds of, of passages of you know of certain things certain lessons and things like that um, one that just comes to mind off the top of my head I really really I always love to read Particular page in Surah Al-Anbiya talks about the du'a of Ayyub and the du'a of Yunus and the du'a of Zakaria. And I think it's really beautiful the way that they, in about, about half a page, two-thirds of a page, all three of those sort of stories come in together and, and the three du'as, uh, the du'a of Ayyub, we think about Ayyub and what he went through and the hardships that he went through and the suffering and, and the fact that he lost everything and then he makes this dua that I've been touched by hardship and you're the most merciful of those who show mercy and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him back his family uh, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought him a cure and then of course the story of Yunus and his du'a, la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-dhalimin. The du'a that no Muslim makes it when they're in a, a difficult situation, except that Allah will relieve that situation for them and relieve that sadness for them and the depression that they suffer. SubhanAllah. And then the du'a of Zakariya. Rabbi la tadharni fardan wa anta khayrul warithin. Oh my Lord, don't leave me without an inheritance. And you're the best of those who inherit. And what really strikes me about this is the very last ayah in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says after mentioning these three uh, prophets and mentioning the dua that they made They used to rush to do good deeds and they used to call upon us in fear and hope and they used to be humbly submissive towards us and it just that to me answers the question why those prophets made that dua and got the answer that they got the reason they got the answer that they got and the reason they got such immediate relief upon making that dua is because that's how they used to be. They used to be calling upon Allah. They used to be rushing to do good deeds. They used to be hoping in Allah and fearing Allah. They used to be humbly submissive towards Allah and lowering themselves before Allah. And so when they made dua, their dua was, was answered. And, and sometimes I, I read that passage and think that might be a a clue as to why sometimes me we make dua and we don't see that immediate relief from some of the dua you know sometimes when we some of the situations that we're in because we don't have that that 
condition that those prophets were like, you know, that, that, that level of iman and that level of good deeds that they were doing. So I, I find that a very beautiful passage of the Quran. In terms of stories of the Quran, I, I love all of the stories of the Quran. I, I often teach them to, to children. One of the things we have at the Islamic Center in Dubai, we do stories of, from history for, for, the, for the little, little kids. Um, but I do like the story of Suleiman. So Suleiman always strikes me as a very beautiful, very, you know, it has all the, all of the elements of a beautiful story. Of course, definitely the story of Yusuf. And, but I think a lot of people mention that. But mm. SubhanAllah, when you think of the story of Suleiman, I think it has those elements of just a beautiful story. And it's really, uh, you know, it, it has just such a, I, I find it so, such a, all, the, all of the story, I find it just amazing the way, you know, the miracles that he was given and the things that happened and then how he passed away. I find it to be just such a beautiful Beautiful story. Subhanallah. Sultan Sulaiman was also the Ottoman Sultan, which which uh, mm. which saw the zenith of the Ottoman Empire. So mm. very interesting there. Three words to describe yourself. That's a tough one because I have to be fair and honest about myself. So <laughs> um, three words to describe myself. I hope that I'm easygoing. I think what that meant, I hope I wouldn't I wouldn't like to. You know, to, to say something good about myself, but I, I hope that I'm a person who's fairly, I'm fairly easygoing, you know, fairly like relaxed person. Oh, it's difficult. I, I, I find that it's, that that's a really it's it's a hard one because there are so many things about my, I don't know like there are a lot of a lot of uh, I don't want to mention the negative things and and the positive ones are probably not true. So, <laughs> Allah mustan. Uh, maybe relaxed, easygoing. Try to be humble. I don't know if I achieve that or not. But so let's say humility, uh, easygoing. Maybe there, maybe there's a couple. Now I want to talk about uh, youth. You know, it's very important for us to get youth involved in the projects that we do. And to some extent, I feel that the older generation, let's say the Gen X, if you want to use that term, maybe hasn't done the best that they have could have in terms of bridging a gap with, with millennials and with, with iGen and roping them into activities that are happening. What is your take on the current state of youth, Muslim youth, and what, what excites you, what concerns you? So there's a lot of things that excite me. Uh, I'm always excited by, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about a revival among among people from from time to time and you know whenever you see young people in the masjid with a with a, a desire real desire to learn islam and a real passion for it subhanallah that's inspiring and that really excites me excites me to see young people doing far better in their studies than i did memorizing far more than i did um having a great a far greater impact in dawah than i do that, that excites me a lot because that that makes you feel like it's not it's not all you know it's not all a downward trend you know subhanallah we're still we're seeing people who are exceeding far exceeding what 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 we've done and that that excites me a lot what concerns me i think i think the the misconceptions that that young people are exposed to and the doubts the confusion that young people are exposed to uh, is at a level which i don't think any generation previous to them have, have ever been exposed to in the past because of their access to information because of how much they have huge access to you know to to people from uh, talking from all over you know if you look at how 
uh, social media has changed the world and how people are able to communicate. It's also caused the spread of doubt and misconceptions. And that's really, it's really, that really concerns me a lot because when those doubts settle in, when they settle into a certain extent, they, they really hurt a person's faith and they really, you know, they can even take a person outside of Islam. So maybe I want to make a comment, and this is actually a comment that Dr. Yasir Qadir made, and I'm just relaying this when he was down. And uh, it sort of ties in what you're saying about doubt settling in. He said he spoke at uh, one of the big conferences of uh, Muslim scholars in America. Mm. And his message to them was, he said, look guys, we need to get over the Salafi-Sufi divide that we have and stop debating about Allah because our generation is asking is there Allah mm. what is your take on that comment I think that to be honest that with the fact that, that we've got young kids who are asking this question is does Allah exist there is no doubt that those people they need dedicated they need things that are dedicated for them they need they need programs and, uh, and classes and videos and whatever it is, posts and whatever, that are dedicated to them for sure. But at the same time, there's a, there's a real need to, to, to seek to sort of provide something for every aspect of the community and every different group of people. I don't think that we need a totally new approach for that. I don't think that we need to sort of, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. I think that we continue to try to explain the truth, we continue to try to share and to try to to try to arrive at the truth in, in the best way that we can. And we continue trying to strive to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet because that's where the blessings are and that's where the good is. But at the same time we don't ignore the fact that there's some young people who have some very specific needs that we have to address. So that's my take on it. So what what is your definition of success? Whoever is saved from the fire and entered into paradise, that's the person who is successful. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. I want to talk about gratitude. That's one of the things, one of the themes for me of the Quran is this idea of, of gratitude. What are you grateful for today? Wallahi, this is a profound question. Because in all honesty, there is so much to be grateful for. You fear that, subhanallah, that, that we fall very short as it relates to gratitude in terms of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think first of all, to be immensely grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah Azza wa Jal guided us despite the fact that there are so many millions, hundreds of millions of people all over the world who have not been guided to Islam, who are spending their time, you know, letting their life go in this world just wasted. And then that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought us to practice Islam among all of the Muslims who know Islam but maybe are not at that stage where they're, they're practicing it. And then for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easy to, to be able to learn his religion and to share it with people. These are, are three of the things that I think that are, are from the most important things that we show gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for. But the reality is that every single thing in my life, everything, is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, to show gratitude for that, that's a pretty immense task. But every single thing that we have is, is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, we really, it's, showing gratitude to Allah is a difficult thing. Because no matter how, in fact, the reason it's so difficult is one of the scholars mentioned, alluded to this, 
that what, when, even when you show gratitude to Allah, you have to show gratitude to Him for being able to show gratitude. And so when you show gratitude to Him, that in itself necessitates showing gratitude. So ultimately, you can't ever, you know, you can't ever fulfill that completely. You're always going to fall short because whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you, it's just, it, it's more than words can describe. I'm thinking of the instance, perhaps you can correct me in my, in my, um, on the exacts of happened. I think it was with Nabi Sulaiman when he heard the ant and I think he made a dua, will allow me to be grateful to you for your bounties and me and, and, no, and my subhanAllah. 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 So we're going to have a little interesting, it's called complete the sentence segment. Okay. Right. okay. Allah is perfect. Subhanallah. Love is a very important part of our iman. Subhanallah. <laughs> the world needs Islam. Allah subhanallah. Happiness is happiness is to achieve servitude to Allah Subhanallah. Success is success is to get paradise. Subhanallah. Being a Muslim to me means to worship Allah as best I can and to try as much as I can to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet SubhanAllah. Leadership is? Leadership is in inspiring people to make positive change. SubhanAllah. Do you perhaps want to shed some light on that world? I think it's very interesting because many people um, aren't aware of the unseen world and what the, the, or let's just say some of the negative effects that the unseen world can have on you. Mm-hmm. Then you also get the people that are aware of it and then sort of are overly paranoid <laughs> about that, yeah. which is also not the best. True. So how do we have, what's, what's the middle ground approach? We have to have the middle ground approach. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا We've made you a middle ummah. So we have, to, we have to be always balanced in everything that we do. There is no doubt that there is a, an unseen world that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has only told us a little about. And sometimes that unseen world can have unwanted effects upon a person in terms of their health, in terms of physical conditions, spiritual issues, emotional issues, and things like that. And I, I think for me, Rukia is about more than the paranormal. For me, Rukia is about using the Quran to seek a cure for all of the the ailments and sicknesses that we have, whether they are physical, medical, spiritual, psychological, uh, or from the paranormal. And I think that for me, Rukia is a very, very big concept of using the Quran and the authentic Sunnah as a means of achieving healing. And I think that is broader than just the world of the unseen. I think the thing about the world of the unseen, we know it exists because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us about it in the Quran. The Prophet told us about it in the Sunnah. And we see with our own eyes how it affects people. And I think the, the way that the title that the, the brothers were organizing this event of Kinani, they call it Hidden in Plain Sight. And that's sometimes very true that you have something that is, it's in front of you, but you, you don't perceive the reality of it. And, and that's why some of the scholars said about sihr, about magic, that sihr is something which is khafi, it's hidden. It's in front of you, but you can't, the cause, you know, the cause, it's a cause that is, the cause is, is hidden from you, the real cause of the problem. 
So I think it's important that we use Ruqya Shari'a, Quranic healing, as a part of our lives, you know, for all of our ailments. And then sometimes when we when we find people are afflicted by things from the world of the unseen, then we treat it, you know, in the right way. I think if you treat it in the right way, it's not a big deal, but it, it becomes worse when you either you either make you, you make it out to be something much worse than it is and much greater than it is, and that leads to people getting so paranoia and things like that. Or you kind of deny it existing at all, and that just leads to people not getting a cure. You know, they're going to hospitals, they're taking drugs, but it's not getting them anywhere. They're not improving. So I think when you put these two things together, you use the Quran, uh, you keep an open mind, and when you find out that something is afflicting a person from the paranormal, you just treat it like you would treat any other condition through the medicine that Allah has revealed to us through the Quran, through the Sunnah. That's just what we need to do, inshallah. So, how would somebody know if they are possibly affected by black magic or by evil eye or jinn or any other thing from? My answer might surprise some people. When I say that it's not really important for you to diagnose it in the early stage. What's important is if you don't feel right, if you don't feel well in yourself, if you, f- if you don't feel in control, for example, of your physical self, of your emotions, if you don't feel like things are going right for you, if you feel like uh, unusual occurrences are happening, or if you just feel unwell and you can't get to the bottom of it, then I think that at that point you should be using Rukia as part of your treatment, along with your other medical things and what have you. And then from there on, you know, you find you follow you follow that path wherever it leads you. If it turns out that the signs are all pointing towards there being some sort of external influence like a jinni or something like that. It's not that can be dealt with, but I think that in the beginning, I don't encourage people to overly speculate that, oh, the reason I'm having a problem in X, Y, Z is because of the gene or because of magic. I would say to people, just get on with the treatment and see where that road takes you. If it takes you to realizing that you had a medical condition, alhamdulillah. If it takes you to realizing that you have something you cause from the world of the unseen, that's also not, it doesn't have to be, a, you know, like a life sort of, changing you know like fatal sort of event you know in fact it's quite easy to get rid of it inshallah with the right steps but a person has to begin with an open mind so i generally teach people not to overly worry about diagnosis in the beginning but if you don't feel right in yourself if you don't feel like for example you know one of us gets a headache we take some paracetamol panadol whatever and you know usually it goes away but you know it doesn't go away and you go to the doctor and it still doesn't go away eventually you realize that something's wrong with me that I'm not I'm not finding a, a solution for, then this is a good time to integrate Quranic healing, not to throw everything else out, but to just add Quranic healing into the wider picture of, until you feel like you've got a solution to the problem. Where could somebody maybe reach your methodology or practitioners of your methodology? Because something that I've seen in this space is there are many charlatans who are practicing and are portraying, uh, portraying themselves, you know, as pious people and wanting to help, but are actually maybe doing things that are contrary to the Quran and the Sunnah. First of all, I have I have a little video which maybe you guys can link to it. It's called a "Simple Guide to Self Rukia," and I think uh, there's two things in that title that are really important. Number one is self rukia, and self rukia. I don't mean necessarily that you read on yourself, but that. You, the rukia is kind of kept within your family, your friends, like maybe a friend does it for his friend, 
or you know a mother does it for her children or a son does it for his mother or a husband for his wife instead of this habit of going to people for everything i don't think there's a need i think there's a need to go to people when it's a particularly difficult case particularly confusing get get advice but you know in terms of the the sort of day in day out rukia i don't think that a person needs to go to someone i think that self rukia in the sense of doing it yourself or doing it within close friends and family members is far far it produces far better results it's far closer to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of reward and also it saves you from all these charlatans and and liars and people who don't practice properly uh, and then obviously the other thing is just keeping it simple in the beginning i think that we we have a tendency to make rukia really complicated mm. and i think the reason you want to make it complicated is you want it to sound really sort of mysterious and you know like i can make you you know this is you need to take this concoction made of these three different ingredients and one of them's found on a far away mountain and you know, it's all this kind of like it's very mysterious and very kind and in reality you know if you were to say to somebody that for most people if they were to make a simple program of reading around about 45 minutes a day just al-fatiha and the last three surahs of the quran ayatul kursi a little bit of surah al-baqarah huge majority of people would find that to be more than enough for them but instead what happens is there's a habit of going to people and sometimes the people they go to it's like a you know it's like a bad uh, car mechanic you know if there's not a problem with your car you'll make a problem with your car you know like so it's that kind of mentality you come to him you might not have anything wrong with you but if you don't have anything wrong with you he'll make something wrong with you you know before you leave So it, it, I think that the solution is to encourage more and more people to treat themselves to treat their friends and families on that principle of you know teach a person to fish rather than giving them mm-hmm. the fish you know that kind of idea and also then you can free up the people who really practice rukia properly to deal with the cases that are really complex and difficult mm-hmm. and you know instead of them dealing with cases that to be honest you know people could deal with at home it's the same same principle you have with with hospitals right and doctors and things like that and pharmacies and what have you you know when you have an issue the first thing you don't go to is the world's you know most highest renowned mm. surgeon you know and you, you you kind of like go into his office and say like oh you know i've got a pain in my left leg you know something like that you're going to first of all treat yourself at home you go to the pharmacy buy something speak to the pharmacist go to the local doctor then go to a more specialized one so we need to have that kind of system in rukia instead of you know the first time that some small thing goes wrong in your life you go straight away to a big you know sheikh or teacher or raqi who may not be practicing properly or even if he is may you know he's going to be busy so he may not be able to give you the treatment you need and the cost and all of the other things that come into it so for me simple self rocket that's the that's the answer subhanallah so i want to share something interesting with you you know in cape town we were quite fortunate uh, during the dutch and the british colonization to have various scholars that were exiled to the cape and who were able to establish uh, islam in the cape and uh, many of these scholars had links with yemen and we have a, a litany that we actually recite in, in cape town usually on a thursday or sunday night tarati by imam al haddad and the rati was actually compiled by imam al haddad because uh, people were complaining to him about uh, about chin problems and mm. problems from the unseen so he wrote this litany as a means of protection and subhanallah so we have something in the cape that we 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 have been using and it's somewhat not being uh, maybe let's say the tradition as as with all traditions has somewhat been faded out So maybe with your visit it will be a good time for us to uh, to be reaware of, of of these realities and to keep these these positive traditions. So very interesting something to look into.
So I think we've come to the end and we usually ask our last question on, on accidentalmuslims.com is today's your last day on earth. Um, what's your final words? Final words has to be no doubt has to be La ilaha illallah. So besides La ilaha illallah, may that be all of our last words. Uh, but in terms of uh, in terms of you know sort of last if you if you found out that you only had today to live, I think that some of the some of the scholars of the past used to say that if I was told that I only had today left to live, I would spend it seeking knowledge. Subhanallah. So I think that subhanallah, there is nothing that makes the path to Jannah easy quite like seeking knowledge. So for me, I think that my sort of parting advice would be to you know spend whatever time you have left learning, trying to put it into practice trying to share with whatever you can with people and just being patient until that final moment comes. SubhanAllah. Jazakul khair, Ustaz Tamamul. I really appreciate your time and wisdom. It's been so nice to meet you. So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.